Well, good morning, Hope. Good to be here with you guys again this week. Surprise, two weeks in a row. You're stuck with me here. Um, Today we are continuing again the uh, sermon series that we're in, The Fruit of the Spirit. And today we are talking about faithfulness. Now, this is one of the deepest, starkest, most striking things about God, that He is utterly reliable, utterly true to His Word again and again. And that's what faithfulness is, is to be utterly true and reliable to your Word. God's faithfulness is something that we see from Genesis to Revelation. All the promises of the Old Testament, the prophecies of the Old Testament, all of these things coming to fruition, coming to pass, Again and again, through every turn of Scripture, through every turn of history, God is seen as faithful and reliable. And now contrast that, that narrative arc of God's faithfulness with humanity's faithfulness. You know, just think of humanity's faithfulness through history. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's, that's the response I was hoping for. Um, because we all know that there is no such thing as... Uh, humanity being faithful through history. You don't pick up a history book and see that the subtitle is Faithfulness of Humanity, right? That just (laughs) isn't something that exists out there. Um, But that raises the question, why are we so different? Why does there appear to be two narrative arcs going through history, two parallel stories, one where you have this all-faithful God and another where you have humans who are anything but that? You know, our default is to be opportunists. Our default is to settle for the counterfeit of faithfulness, which again, we talked about that last week, that all of these fruits of the Spirit have counterfeits. The counterfeit of faithfulness would be loving without being truthful to the most important people in our lives. That's our default. And so why is there such a rift? Is it something that we had? Something that we lost? Is it something that we can even talk about? Is it that far removed from us? And so that is the challenge this morning. And every once in a while, there's a place in Scripture that is extremely uh, focused and concentrated and poignant to the question at hand, and the book of Hosea is that for us this morning. The story of Hosea, the prophet Hosea, will reveal to us not just God's faithfulness and not just how we can be faithful, but the wisdom to live. We were formed in a furnace of faithfulness, and therefore, it's not something that we can live without. And that's a big claim, but our God's a big God, and He's got good things for us. So let's jump into this text. Uh, if, you're, if you're new to the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with prophets in the Bible, prophets were merely people who were called into being a communicator of the nature and work of God. So let's read Hosea. I'm not going to read the whole book, but I'm going to read three sections of it, and then we're going to come back and unpack this and see God's faithfulness through it. So starting in chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Then picking up in chapter 3. The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a left tech of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way towards you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods, 
Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and his blessings in the last days. And skipping all the way to chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more that they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. Led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a child to the cheek and bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me even though they call me God Most High. I will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zebium? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. All right. Did you catch Hosea's call in there in the beginning? First reading there? Here's, here's how I went. If you missed that, go marry a prostitute. Oh, and she's going to bear illegitimate children to you. And as striking as that is, and as thankful as we might be to not be Hosea, right off the bat, that tells us exactly what God is going to communicate through this call to Hosea. And here it is. You and I, Hosea, are both going to give our hearts, our lives, our resources, our time, our energy, our blood, sweat, and tears to people who are going to reject us. I am a husband whose wife has been unfaithful to him. I am a father whose children have rejected him. They're now destroying themselves. And unless you're a part of that, unless you experience that too, you're never going to understand how my heart works. Hosea, you're going to be a living parable for people for thousands of years to come about how my heart works. And again, aren't we glad we're not Hosea? But let's talk about this story, the story between Hosea and Gomer. Uh, Gomer was a scandalous woman in every way. One uh, commentator I, I read this week uh, said that she was like a woman without walls, or I mean, a city without walls, defenseless against her own passions. She's someone who's always been unfaithful. She might be in bed with one lover at the same time thinking about another lover. Uh, and here she is in the midst of this condition. She's not repentant of it or about to recover from it. She's in the midst of this condition. And God says to Hosea, go marry her. And he does. And immediately she is who she is. She is unfaithful to him. She bears three children, perhaps all of them, but definitely the last one was not Hosea's. We know this because of the name of the last child. It was Loanmin, which means not mine. And finally, after months or years of leaving him here or there, sneaking out a night or two here or there, she just 
leaves them all together. And here's what she says in chapter 2. We didn't read that, but this is what she says in chapter 2. She says, I will go after my lovers that give me bread, wool, flax, and oil, and wine. And you can see that here, she, she, she thinks that she's beat it, right? She's heard that other people that make the, these life decisions are, you know, in for destruction, things aren't going to go well from them. But she's, she's like, you know what, I think I'm all right. I think I can keep living this lifestyle and be okay. But verse 8 of chapter 2, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil. It was I who lavished on her the silver and gold. Now there's a scene here, something worth chewing on. There's a little bit of backstory here that'll help illuminate us, this story. Uh, Gomer leaves her husband. She's living with somebody else. Hosea knows this. He knows where she is. And after a while, things aren't going so well for Gomer. Her, her basic needs aren't even being provided for. And Hosea goes to this house, knocks on the door, and says, hey, to the guy, uh, are you the guy living with Gomer? And he says, yes. And he says, look, I know that she's not doing well. Would you take this? He gives him some money to provide for Gomer. And the guy takes it. I'm sure he thinks, wow, what an, what an idiot. Takes the money, provides for Gomer. Gomer never knows where the money comes from. All the while, it's Hosea who is sustaining her and providing for her. It's keeping her from starving, keeping her from death. It's chapter 3. All of this has happened. More years have passed. Gomer's with this guy or that guy. And eventually, uh, her luck runs out. She runs out of the resources that Hosea gave her. And her dangerous choices finally come to an end. And so, moral of the story learned, right? Some people are just beyond saving. Well, that's how you and I would end the story. But God's faithfulness continues to propel the story forward. God says in chapter 3, verse 1, Go show your love to your wife again even though she loves another man and continually commits adultery. And so Hosea says, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about seven bushels of barley. And that is about the exact going rate for a slave in those days in Israel. Things had gotten so bad that she was in the marketplace to be sold as a slave. And let's set the stage here a little bit. This is a profound moment in the story. Let's set the stage so we can sense this and we can feel the, the story here. Uh, it would have been a typical Middle Eastern marketplace. Everything that you can imagine that you could buy would be sold there. Food, clothing, tools, slaves. And again, just by the way, if you're new to the Old Testament, when there's slavery and this kind of stuff that's in the Bible, it doesn't mean that God wants this for His people. This is, this is God breaking into this story and redeeming this story. So just a little caveat there. But again, this would have been a typical Middle Eastern marketplace, and being that she was for sale as a slave, she would have been in the middle of the marketplace. She would have been stripped naked because the buyers would have wanted to see what they were buying. And there she would have been at her very worst, at her bottom. Her lovers have failed her. They've decided to sell her. And there she's standing there naked, ashamed, in the middle of the marketplace. And someone over here says, three shekels. The bidding starts. And someone over there says, seven shekels. And then she hears a familiar voice. Someone says, ten shekels. Could it be? Could it be my husband? 
Someone else says 15 shekels, and Hosea says 15 shekels and seven bushels of barley. Windsor. And now what does he do? Pay attention. There's, there's, there's not a whole lot of words in the text, but there's enough. He doesn't treat her like a slave. Instead, he takes her and says, I've waited for you. I've waited for you. You haven't waited for me, but I've waited for you. He would have clothed her because he sees her as his wife again. He wouldn't have his wife walking around the marketplace naked. He would have led her by the hands to go home. And somewhere in that process, what was Gomer thinking? I don't know, any number of things. But at some point on that walk home, he takes her someplace private and he says, I don't want you as a slave. I want you to be my wife. I don't want you to have other lovers. I'm not going to have other lovers. We're going to belong to each other. After everything, after everything she had done, this is a proposal moment, a reproposal moment, a renewal moment. And there's nothing in the text to indicate otherwise, but how does she respond to this moment, this beautiful moment in the story? How does Gomer respond? We don't know. It's like a Hemingway novel. It just ends. We don't know how she responds, and we'll touch back on that later. I think there's a reason why the story just ends there. But, you know, did she, did she break down and cry? Did she repent? Or did she just run away again? You know, we don't know. But here's the thing. This book has two stories that are running parallel. God's story of God and his family and Hosea and his family. And although we don't know anything more about Gomer, we do know about Hosea's children and that later on in their lives, their lives are a mess as well, which isn't a surprise. And Israel, their life is a mess as well. Israel is my son, God says. I called him out of Egypt. I fed him. I provided for him. When he, when he was a young man, I loved him like a son. I taught him to walk. I led him by the arm. I gently fed him, and yet he turned for me. I mean, do you, can, you, can you grasp and feel the vulnerable picture that these two stories running parallel provide for us? Hosea is beginning to see. Hosea is beginning to feel God's story. His faithfulness. And if we can wrap our minds just a little bit around Hosea, we can wrap our minds around God's faithfulness too. Uh, we have good friends of ours, Chris and I, uh, they, they live out east, uh, Louisville, you know, east of here anyway, and they have a little son, his name is James, some of you guys have met him, and uh, he's adopted, and his biological mom, uh, they, she had him in the hospital and just left him, and God is here saying something to that same degree about Israel. I'm like a father who came in, found you, when you had no mother, when you had no father, I came in and I rescued you. And now you reject me. Now you go down a dangerous and destructive path. And I imagine if that scenario happened to this boy James and our friends, his parents, uh, how they would feel. It would be devastating. You know, like, like we, you didn't have anybody. We came in and we rescued you. And, and now you're going to deny us and turn away from us? Like, that would just be devastating. And this is what's happening to God and his child Israel. This is a period of Israel's history when they're, they're, they're actively walking away from God. 
And we observe exactly how God responds to this unfaithfulness. This is God's response, picking up in verse 8 of 11. We see, we hear perhaps the most startling noise in all of Scripture. Somebody else that I listened to a sermon on this week talking about this said that, and after I studied it this week, I have to agree this is the most startling noise, I think, in all of Scripture. It's the noise of God crying. How can I give you up, Ephraim? My heart is changed within me. And that is the most powerful word that God could use to describe his inner emotional state at his child's unfaithfulness. This word changed is the word used in the Bible to describe the overthrow or destruction of a city by an enemy. My heart is like a city that is in the process of being overthrown, destroyed. My walls are down. My gates are burned. I am more vulnerable than anybody has ever been in history. My insides are turned inside out. I cry for you. I wail for you, my child. Here's God. God's saying, I'm all shattered and burned up and destroyed inside. And yet, in the midst of of Israel's unfaithfulness, He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to give you up. I'm going to roar. Verse 10. But it's not going to be a roar that destroys you. It's going to be a roar that's going to melt you. And you will come trembling from the west. And that word trembling means softened, means melted. I will make you my children again. You will return to me because I am faithful even when you're not. So there's the parable. There's the living parable that Hosea lived through. Israel lived through this. And if we take God's word seriously, here's the message. Unless you understand that I'm a husband whose wife has left him, I'm a father whose child has rejected him and and are destroying themselves, you'll never understand how my faithful love works. Look, guys, what other religion has a God that pursues us like this? Every other religion says, here's your spiritual rights and duties, the things you have to do. God roars and melts us with his faithful love. What's the counterfeit of faithfulness? I mentioned that earlier. It's it's to be loving, but not truthful. God could have just said, okay, Israel, you guys go do your destructive things. I'll I'll love you anyway. I'll just, you know, be over here. That's loving without confronting or challenging, which isn't really loving, right? Our God roars and melts us with his faithful love. All right, so here's what we're going to do for the rest of our time. We're going to track back in this story, and we're going to see three things about God's faithfulness. Number one, we're going to see the elegant complexity of his faithfulness. We're going to see the complete immersion of his faithfulness. And then we're going to see the costliness of his faithfulness. So let's jump right into the complexity of his faithfulness, the elegant complexity of his faithfulness. Uh, Some of you have kids, uh, and some of your kids just started school. I'm talking about your parents who have like kids that are five, six, seven years old. And, you know, they have no idea what's coming at them this year. A, a year, a school year to a kid of that age is like an eternity. You know, they don't know what's going to happen to them. They can't see uh, around the corner. And they also cannot see the elegant complexity of your faithfulness providing for them, guiding for them in these developmental years of life. You know, doing everything that you do to, so they can have happy, safe, little little kid lives. You know, they don't, they, they don't see this. It's too complex for them. 
And if we want to see the glimpse of God's faithfulness and have that be good news that feeds us and nourishes us, here's what the Bible says we need to do. We need to outgrow our spiritual childishness. And this is something we all have to do. This isn't for anybody in particular. It's for all of us. And let me frame it this way. How do you look at things when you think about God and the statement that he loves you, that he faithfully provides for you and cares for you? How do you deal with that statement? Uh, I think some of us might respond this way. God faithfully loves me? You say he has all the power. Well, I saw that he did this for this person or that person. And if I was in charge, I would have done it differently. You know, they didn't deserve these things the way that I deserve them. He doesn't love me. His faithfulness is too elegantly complex for you. In this parable, God is saying that you're always going to be looking at me in this way. Gomer never realized that it was Hosea who was providing for her, even when she thought it was her doing. Do you see the... the the elegance in that, the elegance of his faithfulness in that, in that sense. Uh, we spoke of repentance last week and how that is how you grow. You're, you're, you're never going to grow as a Christian unless you get in the cycle of repentance. And when the Bible says repent in this context, when the Bible wants to invite you into growth in this context, in this faithfulness, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like what Paul said to Timothy. While Paul was in prison awaiting his death, and, and Timothy was all scared, like, oh, my mentor's in prison, he's going to die, maybe I'm going to die, you know, what's going to happen to the movement? Paul knows about this. Paul writes to Timothy and says, I don't know why you're afraid. I'm the one that's in jail facing death. I, you know, I don't know why you're afraid. But here's how he specifically responds to him. This is from 2 Timothy 2.11. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we also will reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Uh, and this is Paul, the author of Galatians, the, the fruit of the Spirit that we've been studying. Paul, the author of Romans and so many other complex books. Paul understood the elegant complexity of God's faithfulness working through history. And he's saying to Timothy, look, we've died with him, so endure what you have to endure because we're going to reign with him. This is a promise. God's faithfulness is allowing Paul to be faithful to himself. He's able to tell himself the truth, and he's able to tell Timothy the truth. He's able to be faithful to him, loving and truthful at the same time. And you know what all this sounds like? <laughs> sounds like this. Grow up. See that you're a child. See that you're looking at life the way the child looks at life. If we want to faithfully live under the elegant complexity of his faithfulness, we need to repent. We don't have the horizon God has. He understands us better than we understand our, ourselves. He, he created us. Do you see the complexity of his faithful work through history? Can you remember it? Can you recall it? The spirit in you, remember we talked about this last week, the spirit inside you has its over-desires. It is over-desiring to remind you of these guideposts of God's faithfulness throughout history so that you can face the complexities of your own life. And, you know, this is hard for me. Uh, sometimes when you prepare a sermon, you kind of think like, 
I wonder, I hope this person's coming this week because this is going to be good for them. You know, just like, it's just a natural thing about it. And so, Carrie, this is for you. You need to grow up. Um, <laughs> just, I figured you'd be able to take that. Um, this, is, this is for me. I wrote this section for me. I need to, uh, this is tough for me. I need to repent and grow up far more often than I let on. I need to recall how he has worked, is working, will continue to work faithfully in my life. All right, number two, the immersion of his faithfulness. And I realize now, maybe I used the wrong word, immersion there. Is it with an I or an E? Okay. At least it's right in my notes. <laughs> number two, the immersion of his faithfulness. God is willing to completely immerse himself in our story in order to bring us into his faithfulness, his story. Uh, now, there's a reason why Gomer, uh, Hosea had to marry Gomer. Think about this and not just befriend her, and not just be like a reporter in, in her life. Uh, if you're a friend of Gomer, and we probably all have Gomer friends in our lives, you can listen to her troubles again and again, but after the hundredth time she calls you at midnight, you're not going to pick up eventually. Her problems aren't really your problems, her wounds aren't really your wounds, but if you're married to her, your heart is bound to her. Her hurt becomes your hurt. Her happiness becomes your happiness. That's why Hosea had to marry Gomer. And God says, unless you're married to a completely messed up, broken person, you're never going to understand what it's like for me to relate to you. And yet God, the God who creates the heavens and earth, God the all-powerful one, the God in this story is broken. He's torn asunder. And not by some other cosmic powerful being, but by one of us. How can one of us bring the heart of this all-powerful God to its breaking point? I'm going to state a claim here, and I wouldn't have the guts to state this if I didn't hear other people state this, and if I didn't believe what I know about the gospel to be true. Chew on this. He who sets his love on us has voluntarily bound up his joy with our joy. God has so bound his heart to us that he will not experience unmixed joy again until we stand before him, pure and blameless and happy and joyful and glorious ourselves. His joy is bound to our joy. His faithfulness is that vulnerable to us. He's identified with us to that degree, immersed himself in our story to that degree. His heart, his joy, because he is faithful, is waiting for us. And until you are completely presented, glorious and perfect in front of him before his throne in the universe, the Bible tells us that on that day, his wound up joy it's going to rock the universe. Uh, another prophet, Zephaniah, puts it this way. He says that on that day, he will sing a song over us that will be the greatest song that's ever been heard. It's the song that everyone here wants to hear. Every fiber of your being needs to hear that song. Whether you realize it or not, whether you know it or not, you're reaching out, trying to hear that song, and you'll never be whole until those notes fall on your ears, sink into your heart, and the beauty of that that moment when God rocks the universe with his joy and his laughter. Okay, apply this. 
taking a little, just a little break to apply this one principle here. Um, I think this is extremely relevant to us now. Right now in the church and in the world, we're really good at identifying where we've been hurt. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a, a thing of wisdom. But now, with the power of his faithfulness, take that wisdom and bring it into fruition. Have you been hurt in the church or outside of the church in some way? If so, let that hurt make you wise and not hard. Uh, some of you are, are listening to this popular podcast about a narcissistic pastor who came to uh, prominence and then did a lot of damage in the church. And why, why are they telling that story and why are we listening to that story? Because it's a call to grow in faithfulness. Here's the bridge I'm trying to make here. It's because of the immersion of his faithfulness through the gospel implanted into our hearts that it goes all the way to our depths to our hurts, to the places we have been hurt. Look, guys, it took me a while to commit here um, to our, our little baby church here, to be faithful here because of past hurts in ministry. To commit to be faithful to something means you open yourself up to be vulnerable, to make it possible to be disappointed, to be hurt, to love others who are flawed. And if you're a leader in ministry at all, you know what I'm talking about. And, and here's what I realized the, the past few years. Is that if we don't want to do that, if we don't want to open ourselves up to be vulnerable in that way, to show the love of the gospel, here's what we're doing. We're moving away from the furnace that forged us. We're looking for another fire by which to warm ourselves. And the only other alternative is to just Keep the conversation of our hearts going as we huddle together, as we shiver together against the dark. The faithful love of God is vulnerable. It has to be. And it makes us vulnerable too. But if you have the new birth living in you, that new vulnerable faithful love can go to the depths of where you've been hurt. And here's what it can do. It can make you wise. So that you can discern so that you and others don't get hurt in that way again. But don't let your hurt make you hard. Take it from me. Allow your hurts to heal you. Allow him to heal your hurts. All right, let's talk about the costliness of his faithfulness. This will be a little quicker one. Um, God shows us through this loving parable that there are two cheap ways to faithfully show love and then one costly way. Uh, Two cheap ways, these are pretty popular, you'll, you'll see them all the time in the culture around us. Uh, you can just support the person and compromise the truth. You could just say to Gomer, well, I see that you are just self-authenticating yourself, and uh, have at it, you know? <laughs> uh, and that's not, that's not anything, you know? That's just a baseline affection. Uh, you could also just quit. You could say, well, I've had it with this person. They just keep making destructive choices. I cannot walk through this with them anymore. I'm not going to pray for them. I'm not going to care for them. You know, just boom, I'm done. These are both really cheap ways of showing faithfulness to either reject or accept. Instead, God has to do a work on our hearts as he did in this story. He has to melt us. He has to transform us. How? By neither quitting or compromising. God, in his restoration process of us, neither quits or compromises. You see, even someone with omnipotence has to love someone in a vulnerable, costly way in order to restore lover as lover. 
God with us chose a costly way. He could have overwhelmed us with our power, just made us a bunch of Stepford wives. Hosea could have overwhelmed Gomer, just made her a slave, locked her up. Instead, he bought her. He bought her. There are two parallel stories running through history from the beginning of time up until the point of Hosea, up until the night before Jesus went to the cross where he's in the garden, he's on the ground, he's sweating, he's, he's crying out to the Father saying, is there any other way? The weight of those two stories, the potential clash of those two stories weighting down on him, the energy that created the universe about to clash with this other energy that almost has the power to destroy it. And Jesus says, is there any other way? And the Father says, no. We could reject them. We could accept them and not worry about the law or justice or any of these things, but, but they'd be destroyed anyway. Because we're holy. If they come in our presence, they'd, they'd implode. So either way, they're destroyed on their own line, on their own trajectory. This is the only way to go. The stories have to clash in the most cosmic sense. When Hosea buys, buys her and leads her away, he says, I don't want you to be my slave. I want you to be my wife. Jesus says, I don't call you my servants. I call you my friends. I pierced the veil. I tore a hole in the cosmic order. No greater faithful love is anyone than this than to lay down his life for a friend. This is how he bought us. That is what his faithfulness demanded, and that's what his faithfulness delivered. All right, let's wrap this up in application here. Um, you may have noticed that I stopped a few times to give some points of application as we went, and we'll touch back on those. But let me just say this first. If Christ has done this for you, do you know what that means? It means that it was you who ran from him. It was you that were up there naked and for sale. That it was you that, that he bit on, that he clothed. It was you that when he won you at great cost, at the cost of his son, said to you, I don't want to call you servant. I want to call you friend. I want us to be family. Let that parallel, which can be your parallel story, if it's not already, sink into your heart. Because that was the faithful love your heart was made for. That story can be our story. All right, really quick, let's apply this um, three ways here. Uh, I'm going to touch or, or, or piggyback on what we talked about last week, that all of life is repentance, and that that's how you grow as a Christian. That repentance is the gas that ignites this engine of growth in through your life. So take that as we talk about these three ways to apply it. Number one, repent that we do not rest in the elegant complexity of his faithfulness and believe that the spirit inside you wants to daily remind you of that, of those, those guide posts through, through history and through your own life, the ways that God has been faithful in your life. Let that be a force of strength and confidence for you that you can face your own complexities of life. Two, uh, repent and believe that he has so immersed himself in our story that he goes to the very depths of where we've been hurt, and we can trust his faithfulness. We can trust his faithful healing work down there in our very depths. He wants to turn that hurt into wisdom. Allow his roar to soften you and do that. 
And number three, we'll close with this. Um, to faithfully love others, to be reliable and true towards others is costly. You know why the story of Gomer just ended? I think it's because there isn't a biblical principle there. If, if we saw that Gomer repented and was faithful for the rest of time with Jose, we would, would have been like, oh, there's, there's a principle. You know, you do this and people will always respond in this way. But we don't know how she responded and we don't know how people will respond when we faithfully present the gospel. But we persevere. Persevere in the gospel. We keep reminding ourselves and each other and the world of the hope that's found in the gospel. He laid down his life for us. By that strength, just like Paul said to Timothy, we will persevere. Let me read that, that verse again in Timothy, and we'll end that end the sermon in that way as a benediction. The saying is trustworthy. If we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. But if we're unfaithful, he remains faithful since he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your faithfulness. Without it, we would be lost. We would just be a bunch of people huddling together against the dark, keeping the conversation going about who knows what. You faithfully pursued us. You faithfully bring us back to you again and again. That's where we want to reside. That's where our hearts were made for. Encourage us and bring us back to your gospel this week. Thank you for our church here, Lord, and thank you for everyone here this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen.